Diversity isn't just a nice to have, it's essential for business. I'm Oli Giu. And I'm Shika Vorto, and this is Pitch Pulse, a podcast from the Private Infrastructure Development Group. Pitch finances innovative infrastructure projects in sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia. We're committed to the economic growth of the world's most fragile communities, lifting them out of poverty with a strong focus on sustainability. Today, we discuss the need for greater investment in gender equality, in female leadership and in services which improve the lives of women and girls. Across the globe, women are underrepresented in management and on corporate boards. They're often paid less than their male counterparts and they're victimised by gender-based violence and harassment. At Pidge, we understand that gender equality isn't simply about doing the right thing, but about improving business performance. So let's find out how Pidge is empowering women in addressing this issue. Hi, I'm Celia Carvajosa, Development Impact Analyst at Pidge. Hi, I'm Emily Wood, Head of Social Performance and Safeguarding at Pidge. Let's kick off by explaining what gender lens investing is and why the phrase seems to scare people. It's really not that scary. All it really boils down to is about the need to not continuously exclude over half of the population when you're designing you know, a program. We do infrastructure and we don't want to create infrastructure that further excludes women or puts uh, women at risk. But also we need to look at women and girls as key resource managers with you know, vital community and family links and business insights. And we just can't afford to continue to not invest in them or include them. Numerous studies have been produced over the last two decades examining the business case for gender lens investing. The evidence is overwhelming when you invest in women meaningfully, not just investing in women for the sake of it. You get better returns for your business, more innovative outcomes because this is linked with diversity, even though it's not caused by it. You get better investment in sustainable climate practices. And overall, you know, we, we've seen that uh, we get you know, companies that are diverse in the sense of, you know, gender, but also race, et cetera, and other, you know, intersectionalities. They, they perform better than those uh, companies that aren't diverse and that don't take this lens into consideration. So it simply just doesn't make any sense not to involve women in the picture. There are a number of key initiatives working to improve gender lens investing. Pidge recently joined the Gender Smart Investing Summit, which is bringing together a community of organisations to address the issue. They actually announced during the summit that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of new commitments that are being uh, carried out in 2021. And one of the exciting initiatives that they mentioned was something called the Aurora Project, which is getting together a research consortium and uh, leaders in the gender lens investing community to standardize uh, legal and practical definitions and develop a a toolkit, uh, you know, whenever there's any kind of investment going into women so that we uh, we're all using and speaking the same language effectively. And that's been one of the biggest barriers in the field. In our last episode, we spoke about the climate crisis and the work that's being done to safeguard the future of our planet. There's mounting evidence to suggest that improving gender diversity in business could actually help us meet our climate targets more quickly. You've got to think about climate change affecting gender differently. And then you can start thinking how gender can have a different role to play in mitigating climate change. So just thinking about the effects, I mean, climate change has the greatest impact on those most reliant on natural resources. And that's disproportionately women and the poor who are most vulnerable to the risks of natural disaster, floods, famine. Again, that's disproportionately women. Water scarcity, for example, 
caused by climate change can increase the burden on women and girls who have to go out. They're the ones that are going out collecting the water. And changes to weather patterns, causing famine and forcing families to split, leaving the land, seeking other work. This can have real knock-on effects on women, reducing girls' access to education. The increased stresses as well from climate change on communities can really exacerbate existing incidents of gender-based violence, again, disproportionately affecting women and girls. Whilst business needs to be aware of the role of gender in climate change, it shouldn't think of women as victims of it. We need to pay attention to the massive role women play in responding to the crisis. They have local knowledge and they have leadership skills in sustainable practices, both at the household level and at the community level, which which really should be tapped into. This expertise, leadership, purchasing power and real life experience can help unlock gender smart and climate smart opportunities and strengthen climate innovation and really help deliver stronger environmental outcomes. So just sort of stepping back and thinking more broadly, there's really growing recognition of the unfulfilled potential that gender equality can have to support a more prosperous, just and sustainable society. If we improve diversity, we diversify views, which means new solutions are able to come to the table to problems and then those solutions could be found more easily. There's also research to suggest that as women have been more socialised to care for the needs of others, they now have a much closer feeling towards social responsibility. As a result, they're much more likely to want to achieve the socially sustainable and desirable outcomes and really what Pidge is looking for. Among the crises disproportionately affecting women is the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a global problem highlighted in reports, including the UN Women and UNICEF report. If you think about the economic impacts of the pandemic and then the effects of being locked down, these are really felt hardest by women who are generally the ones earning less, saving less and holding the more insecure jobs or living closer to poverty. We know that women make up by far the greatest proportion of the informal economy with few protections around them against jobs dismissal and having limited access to social protection. We do know that women have had better survival rates of the actual disease, but the effects on the general healthcare services have had a much, much greater effect on women. Reallocation of resources and priorities away from routine health services including essential maternal health care, family planning, sexual health services, leads to greater numbers of pregnancies, higher morbidity in child labour and related conditions, and seeing an increase in HIV. With children being out of school, women have also taken on an increased share of the unpaid work. And those children as well, we mustn't forget, that are out of school. Girls disproportionately have had less access to the remote learning platforms provided, and so their education has had a greater impact. And then, of course, the economic and social stresses of the pandemic and the lockdown that's been um, put in place has seen an exponential increase in domestic violence. Many women have been forced to lock down at home with their abusers at the same time that the services that should be there to support survivors are being disrupted or have been made inaccessible. And then if we think about where Pidge operates, these impacts are further amplified for women where we're in conflict or fragile 
countries which have weaker economies and where the institutional and support services are already limited before the pandemic comes and has that greater effect. As the pandemic has had such an impact on women, it's clear that gender needs to play a role in the global post-COVID recovery efforts. The Criterion Institute lays out a number of aspects to this. So the first one, which is pretty obvious, is that, you know, if women drop out of the workforce and they can't re-enter it, then that's obviously going to have an impact on economies in terms of recovering. Women are not just more in general, of course, uh, socially invested in, in the positive social outcomes of where they live from a climate change perspective. But it's also um, uh, so in terms of community resilience, women are at the forefront. And it's not just community resilience in terms of climate change. It's also in terms of the economy. So not tapping into women's talent and potential in a time of crisis is a definite mistake. And there's a lot of research to back that up. So whilst um, the gender division of labor dictates almost universally that, you know, women will take on the bulk of unpaid care for their families, whilst that's incredibly resourceful and helpful and generous in the short term, it doesn't do the economy any favors. And so not only is that, you know, not translating into economic outcomes, but these are missed opportunities that actually a lot of investors are looking at it now in terms of ideas, ventures, you know, coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic that actually could be um, remunerated that, you know, they currently aren't being remunerated. So that's definitely something we don't want to be missing out on. And in terms of what we do, so infrastructure projects, because of the long-term lifespan of infrastructure projects, if we don't involve women from the beginning in the design process, we then risk locking in that failure for decades to come. So that just means amplifying, you know, the negatives of of a missed opportunity over a long period of time. And actually, if we do this, uh, we're actually uh, factoring GBVH from the beginning. So protecting women and ensuring that they're not uh, in, in danger. Now, we must stress that gender blind transactions aren't just thought to be problematic. Not only is the research clear, there are real examples of how ignoring gender can negatively impact infrastructure projects. There was, and it's part of the 10 points of materiality cited by the Criterion Institute. And one of the uh, studies that they offer is a large scale water and sanitation project across 58 districts of Zimbabwe. But uh, it was forced to shut down due to a male centered approach in the design and running of the project, which also proved to be culturally insensitive to women. So it's not just about isolating the risks. It's also about, you know, taking a a gender blind approach to an intervention can actually prove detrimental to the financial viability of the infrastructure asset in question, but also in terms of, you know, a product or service that's being designed. So again, we just can't afford to keep excluding women. We touched on it before, but there's obviously more to our treatment of women in business than leaving them out of the boardroom. It's also critically important businesses think about the issue of gender-based violence and harassment. Women make up half of society and we've really got a moral obligation to try and enable women to live and work free of harassment. And secondly, there is a cost to business of gender-based violence. I mean, there's a direct cost, and that comes about through women taking time off work, feeling under stress, so having lower productivity, and then the cost, the higher administrative and operating costs 
of dealing with the compliance and training around GBVH and other programs. And then there's also the indirect cost to business. Violence against women prevents economies from growing and actually being able to reach their full potential. And this results in lower growth, lower tax revenues, and greater expenses in those countries for healthcare, education, the justice systems, etc., in the arena that the businesses are trying to operate. Data is a big driver for change. Without information, people often don't see the true extent of an issue. And this is of particular importance when it comes to women working in global value chains, where the data is scarce. There's a general problem with data collection on anything, on any kind of uh, quantitative indicators, uh, economic indicators to do with women. We just don't see them being formally reported and collected almost universally. And it's actually proving, uh, you know, that that's a massive barrier for us to even report on and yet alone achieve SDG 5. So this is unfortunately a universal uh, phenomenon. But also part of the reason is that gender lens investing as a science and approach just hasn't really been on the scene for that long. So in terms of even collecting that longitudinal data that we can perhaps access much easier from, you know, climate uh, investing approaches, we just we just don't have it. We, we, we're not there yet. But when it comes to supply chains specifically, it gets incredibly complicated because, you know, the deeper you go and the lower you go in the supply chain, the more vulnerable women are and the harder and harder it is to actually collect that data for, for various reasons. Right. There's uh, anonymity issues, but just lack of kind of formal structures and, and processes in place. You know, and, and as Emily was saying before, women make up the bulk of the informal economy. So it, it then becomes very difficult to quantify and kind of officially count uh, whatever the issues are for, for the particular issues of women across different supply chains. So better reporting for women in the supply chain would just really help bring you know to light the specific grievances um, and challenges that they're facing. But again, moving away from that kind of victim you know lens, to look at how we can empower them. Um, and there is so much, if, if, you know, if I had one main takeaway from the 2021 Gender Lens uh, Investment Summit, it was that there is a massive opportunity that's being missed for women SMEs and women entrepreneurs in the supply chain. And as I was saying before, it's basically a, a universal blind spot. It's very hard to do but it's worth starting. And once you do get started, uh, you know, the rest of the, the way is paved. Let's find out about the PIDGE Gender Equity Action Plan, an overarching framework for the company to drive change in this area. It's an overarching framework that's underpinned by existing policies across three pillars. The first pillar is on the HSES and safeguarding side, which Emily knows a lot more about. The second pillar is on our kind of a programmatic uh, approach to gender lens investing in our projects. And the third pillar looks at how we can kind of lead by example uh, and mainstream our ambitions across our operations and internally. So within the second pillar, in terms of our you know projects, we've got a set of already existing uh, policies, but part of, of our framework includes our 2020 progress, but also the the new ambitions and targets that we've set ourselves for 2021, which has been you know put together with the help of the companies, and also a great source of inspiration for it has been the uh, Gender Smart Investing Summit that came out of February 2021, which really helped us raise our ambitions and kind of broaden the scope on what we want to do. 
PIDG aims to ensure that no harm is done within the positive development impacts of its projects. That's why the company screens its projects for gender-based violence and harassment risk as part of its safeguarding policy. That sets out our commitments across PIDG and the PIDG companies to ensure a work environment that's free of sexual harassment, intimidation, exploitation or abuse. And also to seek to ensure that the communities we interact with are free from any form of project-related intimidation, exploitation, violence or abuse. So yeah, as you said, we screen all our projects for GBVH risk, which is the sort of fundamental requirement of the policy. And we then ensure that GBVH is included in our project due diligence and in all of our environmental, social and risk assessments done on our portfolio projects. And then if we identify any GBVH risk, we can then put those mitigation measures into the ESAPs, into our contractual agreements. The safeguarding policy also requires, and we have in place, a whistleblowing procedure. And all our project companies have grievance mechanisms, both for their workers and for the local communities. And this allows all the project companies to report GBVH incidents and allegations. And we can then monitor these and we can look across our portfolio on on where our GBVH risks are and how they're being implemented. So 2020, we rolled out a GBVH training program across all our companies, um, and that was to raise awareness. And then this year, we're going to be carrying on with further training. So this sort of fits back into what Celia was saying of the Gender Equity Action Plan. So the safeguarding part is forming the pillar one of that. As part of this, Pidge has developed a set of rules which provide ways to mitigate against these issues within portfolio projects. The HSCS safeguarding rules are a set of 10 rules designed to ensure safeguarding against GBVH, modern slavery and child labour. These need to be in place across all of our projects. They provide the fundamental requirements we want to see, no matter the size, sector or location of our projects. And the idea is that we sort of keep these as 10 simple, clearly understood rules, that if we can implement these across our projects, we're not going to be completely risk-free, but we really will be a long way in reducing our GBVH risks. One of the most critical GBVH safeguarding rules is having a code of conduct. This is our rule two. And this is just such a simple and effective tool, but it makes so much sense. Because we can't have expectations around a certain conduct if we don't actually define what that is. So we all don't have the same expectations. We don't have the same boundaries. We live in different societies. So we really need to make sure that we establish really clear definitions and clear expectations of what PIDGE means by GBVH and what those sanctions are for anyone for breaching those codes. So PIDGE has a code of conduct and we expect all our project companies to sign up to that code of conduct. And then we've also developed guidance around this so that the project companies can then develop code of conducts for their workers, for their contractors and for their supply chains. And this way that we all know we know that pitch, we know pitch companies, we know at the project level, we all know what we're trying to achieve in regards to GBVH. Thanks to Celia Cabajosa and Emily Wood for joining us on the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Pidge's approach to gender equity, visit pitch.org. You've been listening to Pidge Pulse. You can find our podcast on all the major platforms. Please like and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. I'm Ollie Giu. And I'm Shika Voto. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.